Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. It's the holidays, and many of us are seeing family members and coworkers and neighbors at parties. Sometimes the topic of Christianity comes up, and you may be having conversations about your beliefs. You may find yourself defending your belief in Jesus in general, or even trying to convince Trinitarian loved ones and friends to understand who he really is. In today's episode, Jeff Dibel explains how powerful and important presuppositions are in these conversations. Additionally, he recommends the approach of asking good questions to open the door to changing people's minds. Now, Jeff Dibel is a retired pastor who has served in the Churches of Christ in Australia in various capacities for four decades. He's also the author of the book, Christ Before Creeds, Rediscovering the Jesus of History, and that book has a very conversational and friendly approach, which in my opinion makes it a more effective tool at winning people over. And I should also mention this book is currently on sale on Amazon. It makes an ideal present to give people to introduce them to the Jesus of the Bible. Here now is episode 526, The Role of Assumptions in Bible Conversations with Pastor Jeff Dibel. Welcome to Restitutio, Jeff Dibel. So glad to have you today. Thanks, Sean. It's a real pleasure and privilege to be with you. Uh, to begin with, you have been on this show a couple of times, and I think it would be great if we could have an update. What's happening in your world since we last spoke? Yeah, okay. Well, what's happened is I was a pastor of a local church down at Wollongong, one of the few churches of Christ that would be happy to have me, uh, given my unorthodoxy. Last year, I handed that over to a, another pastor who uh, lived locally because it was about an hour and a half commute for me to the church. It made a lot more sense for him to be there. So I've passed that on. And also, up until several months ago, I was chaplain in a full-time capacity with the Australian Defence Force. I was a, a chaplain with a regiment there. I've passed that over now as well. I've I've retired from that. In fact, the guy that I passed it over to, just after I passed it over, it was a helicopter regiment, and one of the helicopters went down and killed four guys that I knew personally. And so this brand new uh, padre or pastor into the regiment uh, all of a sudden had so much on his on his hands to do with all of the memorial services and support to the regiment and the families of those who died. And so anyway, so yeah, so I've retired from that. And then also I've basically now, yeah, fully retired. Um, I'm helping Steve, my son, with his church, a bit of a change of role. He was supporting <laughs> me as a senior pastor for many years, and now I'm supporting him as a as a senior pastor. So, uh, so that's happening. Yeah, I'm just a lot more time for, for family and all that sort of thing. Okay. Do you intend to stay retired for long, or are you looking for other things to do? It's an interesting season. I've got all these list of projects to get onto around the house, but so many things have kind of interrupted that, that I'm, I'm fairly busy on other things that come up. And, and so far, I, I'm quite content to be as I am and just see okay. what God does. Very good. 
Very good. So uh, let's talk about Christ Before Creeds, your book. Uh, what's been the feedback? What have you heard? Yeah, well, look, I've been a bit overwhelmed, actually, Sean, with how much positive feedback I've received from actually all over the world, you know, from Britain, from, from India, from New Zealand, America, Australia. I've been more than amazed with just the amount of positive feedback. The people who have come to a different position after reading my book than they were before. So, you know, I wasn't sure mine was meant to be a bit of an introductory text, but some people having read it have become convinced that, yeah, absolutely, Trinitarianism really doesn't hold any support for them anymore. Uh, one lady, actually, she was very positive and some members of her home or her household, her family, had become convinced having read the book. So she was very supportive and she actually offered to pay for to sponsor a translation of the book into another language and um, that's now happened as you know it's just come out in a spanish translation and uh, that's just recently become available well there you have it and you don't speak any spanish do you not a word hardly (laughs) (laughs) so and and also just on that we also have an audio book version coming out oh yes Uh, i've recorded my section and yes. Mark Kane is about to record the introduction and the appendix. So hopefully that'll be out by Christmas as well. Excellent. That's so great. I love audiobooks. I'm a huge fan. I read at least two a month, two audiobooks <laughs> a month. Um, so <laughs> uh, anyhow, this book is touching a lot of lives and I'm very excited to see what the Spanish version does and who who it touches. Yeah, in fact, Sean, I feel a bit like the boy and his five loaves and two fishes, you know, sort of uh, giving it to Jesus. I feel like what I had was so small and inadequate, and then others have developed that and enriched it, and it's been distributed, and God has blessed it, and it's, it's uh, achieving far more than I could have ever, you know, expected. Yeah, yeah. We just do what God calls us to do, and let him figure out the rest. Mm, Absolutely. So in April of this year, Dustin Smith and Will Barlow debated Samuel Nassan and Kyle Essary on the question, is Jesus Yahweh? Kyle Essary, who was arguing that Jesus is Yahweh, said something in this debate that really grabbed your attention. What did he say? Could you talk a little bit about this? Yes. Let me just bring that up so I can quote him. Yeah, please do. Um, I actually wrote it down. So this is what it says. He said, I don't believe that it's possible, and what he means there, that it's possible to set aside one's beliefs in order to interpret the scripture. It's not something we can or should do. I would argue that we bring our presuppositions to the text, and what we're looking at is not so much how we can set those presuppositions aside, but whether or not our presuppositions and the view of the text we have are consistent. So what about that bothered you? Well, it's interesting because at one level, I don't really have a problem with what he's saying here. I mean, I agree we all have presuppositions that we bring to the text and as we exegete it, and yes, that does involve this interplay between our assumptions and what the text says, and uh, hopefully we're testing out both our presuppositions and the text and trying to bring them into alignment and consistency. But maybe I was reading into the statement or maybe I was just 
kind of reading some of the implications of what he was saying. First of all, I think there's an implication that kind of all presuppositions or assumptions are, are kind of equally valid, valid. You know, you bring yours, I bring mine. So what, you know, we've each got our own assumptions. Surely not all assumptions are valid. Secondly, there's kind of this belief that people are willing and able to let go of their presuppositions or sort of amend them fairly easily. And in my own personal experience and in my reading of history, I don't believe that's the case. I think presuppositions are usually very firmly held and are very kind of extremely resistant to examination and change. And, and an example that easily comes to mind is, you know, the debate between evolution versus intelligent design. Now, here you've got a community on both sides of very intelligent people who have access to the same facts, the same evidence, the same scientific data. And yet based on their presuppositions, based on their assumptions, interpreting that data very differently and coming to very different conclusions. The importance of our assumptions cannot be overlooked or downplayed. And I guess that got me thinking around the whole, you know, importance of our assumptions and how that plays out in our theological debates. Yeah, certainly is the case that our assumptions very much shape how we interpret data. And mm. I wonder if you could talk about how our assumptions affect how we arrive at doctrinal truth a little bit. Mm. Because to be honest, that statement he made, e even the first time I heard it, when I was watching it, and I don't remember if I watched it live or I watched it later, but it caused me to bristle as well. I was like, what? We can't, we can't lay aside our assumptions. It's like, well, surely we can to some degree, or at least be self-aware, right? Uh, what mm. do you think about how it affects doctrinal truth? Yeah. Well, look, I think what you need to understand is that our beliefs based on certain facts and evidence but also on assumptions. And so it's our assumptions and our evidence that gives rise to our beliefs. And of course, there's a lot of overlap and interplay between our assumptions and the facts or the evidence. Now, the facts and the evidence, they're a bit more objective. They're a bit more simple. They have to do with, you know, what's objective and, and logic and reasoning. And it's kind of the domain of theologians and scientists and philosophers. They're very used to dealing in that sort of dimension. But the other aspect, which is our assumptions, they're much more complex. They're much more sinister. They feed into not just our, our intellect, our mind, but also into our emotions, into our will, into our experiences uh, a whole lot of other things. So you've got these two dimensions that are feeding our beliefs. Of the two, I believe our assumptions, they're more formative, they're more influential, and therefore, I believe, ultimately more significant than even the facts or the data. I think if you really want to debunk something, any evidence that's contrary to that. You have, what is it called? Selection bias? You know, you kind mm -hmm. of select out those things that support you and then minimize those that go against what you're looking for. So I think yep. the angle at which you approach something is, I think you're right, it's incredibly influential. How can you mm. test 
the validity of your assumptions? How can you know if your assumptions are any good? To affirm what you're saying there, you know, just as an example, think of like two men. They're marooned on a on a desert island. You know, they wake up in the morning and and one actually, you know, has the assumption that this is a deserted island. There's no one else living there. The other has the assumption that there must be other people. So they walk down the beach and they see some stones or shells that are arranged in a geometrical shape. It might be a heart or an arrow or something. And so they both look at that simple design, I guess, of rocks or, or shells because one assumes that there's no one else on the island. He just assumes that that's just, you know, a freak of how the waves have washed in those rocks. The other one who who has the assumption that there are other people says, no, someone has actually put those there, you know. So once again, it's a bit like the, the evolution, design, you know, depending on their assumptions is how they will perceive, you know, what they're looking at and what they tend to overlook that will affect their interpretation so how it frames their perceptions and the, the questions they ask or don't ask and also therefore you know their explanation and the deductions and conclusions that they come to so yeah absolutely it's very key so yeah sorry to get back to your question um how can we test the validity of our assumptions as i said there's this interplay between our assumptions and and evidence or facts in that interplay i think you're looking for first of all internal congruency and secondly external consistency so first of all our assumptions have to make sense they should be logical they should be reasonable they should make sense you know serving within themselves and then secondly they should be consistent with what the evidence or the facts are so if there's any dissonance in that, if there's any sense in which our assumptions don't really make sense or they don't really fit the facts, then I think that would be good reason to reassess their validity. And But the only thing, of course, as I said, is it's, it's a very complex situation. Feeding into our assumptions, you've got all this other stuff happening. You know, there's, there's a need to belong a need that we want to share the same worldview as the as the people in our community in, 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 and so there's that need to belong there's a need to be safe so that if if changing our assumptions and our worldview is going to destabilize and cause anxiety then that's going to be an issue you know we've got all our ego needs you know the the, the need to be right the need to be seen as as okay there's the desire to be comfortable i mean there's all these other things feeding into almost at a deeper level so you, at an intellectual level you, you can test the validity of your assumptions but you need to recognize that there's all these other underlying things that are also feeding into the assumptions as well i, I think a lot of times we don't like to admit all that other stuff we just like to claim that reason alone convinces us of what we believe and yes it's just as simple as that but it, it never is i think you're right yes. it never is <laughs> There are all, always all kinds of reasons we don't even think about that are behind the scenes or beneath the surface. Uh, well, let's come back to debating the Trinity because uh, this is something that you've done and something that is continuing to go on. In fact, in Texas, there was a, a debate at the, uh, the Evangelical Theological Society with Dale Tuggy and William Lane Craig and a couple of others. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm just thinking of the young people in that room and you know, all ages, but, you know, especially the young people that are just like getting first exposure to 
a non-Trinitarian scholar, PhD from Brown University, which is very prestigious in the States here, Ivy League. Mm. They're sitting there and they're listening and they're like, you know, I know for sure this guy's wrong. I just have to find out why. And that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly what we're talking about, right? So let's let's come back to the subject of the Trinity. What problems do you see with the validity of presupposing the Trinity when you come to Scripture? Yeah. Okay. Sure. A good place to start is to ask what is the assumption of the New Testament writers? It's very obvious to me, anyway, that the New Testament writers shared what was first century Judaism's understanding of who God is and who the Messiah was. That was their heritage. That's what they grew up with. That's what they would have understood. And that's the the position they would have been writing from unless they very clearly indicate or tell us otherwise. So I think, you know, the most reasonable assumption as we approach the New Testament is not to have a Trinitarian paradigm, but rather to have a first century Judaistic assumption in terms of what's underlying those writings. And then as you read through the New Testament, you've got the Gospels, for example, the accounts of the virgin birth. There's no indication as you read those accounts that they're understanding that Jesus has a pre-existence to his physical birth in terms of a physical pre-existence. And then the miracles, you know, when Jesus is performing these miracles, all the people around, they're not saying, you know, hey, this must be God. They're saying, they're praising God that he's given this authority to a man and that this is a great prophet who's arisen. So they're not expressing any assumption other than that. And even as Jesus rides in on the donkey, as you know, as he comes into Jerusalem, you know, the cry goes up, you know, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're welcoming as their king as their Messiah, not as God. And then you've got the trials. And I used to read the trials thinking that, you know, Jesus was on trial for claiming to be God. But actually, as you read those accounts, he's on trial for his his claim to be the Messiah. And it was his claim to be the Messiah that was seen as blasphemous and unacceptable. And then as you go into the book of Acts, you know, you've got Peter saying that Jesus was a man accredited by God to you by miracles. You've got Paul saying, I'm not saying anything beyond what has been declared to you in in our traditions and in the scriptures. So there's no indication as you read through the New Testament that there's been any departure from the assumptions that they had of first century Judaism. Uh, I just don't see that anywhere. So that's one thing. I don't know whether you want to make any comment before I... Yeah, yeah, let me, if you don't mind. What I hear you talking about is getting at the assumptions of the people who encountered Jesus historically in the first century, which is, I think, a really helpful approach. So what was their framework? What was their approach? Did they already believe in the Trinity or a version of the Trinity or an early sort of like proto-Trinitarian view do we have any evidence of Jewish people in Galilee or Judea who held to any of those ideas? We don't. I think it makes sense to sort of like see through their eyes. Yes, yes. And that's that's what I hear you like encouraging us to do, to adjust our assumptions and presuppositions to their world and yes. see Jesus through that. Okay, we've got somebody doing miracles. 
What does that mean? Well, from a Jewish first century perspective, it means that God had visited his people, that a Mm. prophet has arisen among us, that Mm. the Lord God is at work within him, Mm. uh, reconciling the world unto himself or performing these deeds through him. When we adjust our eyes to see the way that they see, that's the kind of Jesus that Mm. becomes clear. It's, It's not this philosophical Jesus who is talking about usia you know mm. it's just such a funny <laughs> word he's not talking about his being and nobody mm. not anybody ever talks about this word person mm. you know where's that in the bible so there's no person in being not even paul who's very smart very mm. educated he doesn't get into this he doesn't say well that's his person but not his be-. we don't we just don't have that kind of language it seems much more like you said politically driven this idea of a Messiah is a political figure and a religious figure. Let me ask you this. What happens when we turn the page from the last part of the New Testament and we look at the first part of church history? Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, as you know, as you just said, it's really reading the scriptures in historical context. Yeah. Um, so not assuming that my perspective is the same as those that that were speaking or, or writing, you know, the events. But I, I need to get into their worldview to understand where they're coming from, not presuppose upon that my own assumptions. So in terms of church history, you know, as you know, it, it's not until you get into the fourth century and even later in the fourth century that you get this developed Trinitarian understanding of Jesus. So to try to then take that understanding and the presuppositions around that and bring that back into the new testament is certainly disingenuous if not you know sort of uh, very very difficult to be able to sustain logically a lot of those so-called controversial passages i'm talking about john's prologue thomas's statement Mm -hmm. philippians 2 those kind of statements if you have a theological paradigm which is trinitarian sure you can take those and make them fit your assumptions and paradigm but they don't have to there's other interpretations which you know to me make as much sense equally as valid um, if you don't share those assumptions that trinitarians have Uh, plus of course many other passages which i think quite clearly work against trinitarian assumptions. yeah when it comes to church history I've been somewhat fortunate in regards to coming across it. Maybe I was 24 years old when I first came across church history and in the in the classroom and learned about it. And I was just like, "What? What is all this stuff? Who are all these people? Why? You know, I've been going to church my literally my entire life, yeah. and I've never heard the name Ignatius or Tertullian or Novation or Origen. I've li- never heard any. Of the, who are these people? And I don't think I'm weird in that sense. I think most of us in the Protestant world don't study church history. We don't really have a reason to. Mm-hmm. And so when this subject comes up, we think to ourselves, well, the experts, surely they have this worked out. Surely the yeah. experts have lots of quotations from the second century and the third century. It's not just in the fourth century. People are just taking others word for it. But Mm. when you really start to look at it, what you find is development. You don't find a fully blown trinity. 
what what other problems are there with bringing our presupposition of the Trinity to Scripture? You know, although I say there's this interplay between the evidence, you know, the scriptural text, what they actually say, and our assumptions or presuppositions, it's our assumptions and presuppositions that tend to win out most of the time because they are much more subversive, uh, subconscious, they're working on us in ways that we may or may not appreciate and understand. And there's a whole lot of other things that are supporting our assumptions that then cause us not to be able to perceive the text in a, a truly objective or in a way that truly fits their historical context. I know for me personally, it took me a long time, maybe a decade or so, to change from a Trinitarian to a fully convinced non-Trinitarian position. Um, And look back on that and I think, why did it take me so long? You know, I mean, because I was reading books at different times and the arguments that were coming up were, you know, I, I would say, yes, well, that could be so, but then what about this? And okay, maybe, but then what about that? And, and you know, it was going backwards and forwards. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, the thing that actually got me over the line was when I actually thought, why don't I actually, I've always read the New Testament with my Trinitarian assumptions and framework operating. Why don't I just try reading it from a non-Trinitarian perspective and as I started reading it from that perspective it was only when I was willing to put my assumptions aside then it began to make sense then it began to gel far more clearly and consistently than what it ever did before and I said yeah this is a far better way to read the scriptures yeah so that's what we want to have happen for others we want to challenge others to have the Jeff Dibel experience to take their Trinitarian glasses off and put on first century Jewish glasses, you know, which is, mm-hmm. those, those are all the people in the New Testament, uh, with maybe one exception of, of Luke. Uh, but even Luke, if he's a Gentile, who knows? But, you know, it seems like there's a lot of Jewish stuff going on in his gospel, too. So, you know, I think you put those glasses on, and, and you read it from that perspective, but people won't do it. Mm-hmm. They won't do it, because they're afraid. What are they afraid of? What, what, is, what is holding people back? What do you think? There's all sorts of things that could be operating, as I say, underneath or in the background. Now, look, for some people, and for me, it was all I was ever taught. You know, I was never given any other option to see it any other way. Um, So I was just brought up, you know, indoctrinated in a Trinitarian paradigm. And you just kind of, you never question it unless you're given information or uh, presented with another side of the argument whereby you can begin to question. So I think that's... For some people, that's just the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was for me. Well, I would add to that something else, which is the flip side. And that is mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm becoming increasingly aware of people from different, you know, Catholic, Baptist, Church of England, people from different backgrounds who attend churches that are supposed to be Trinitarian, mm-hmm. and they just never believe in it at all. So there's... Mm. So there's actually a lot of people on that side, too. I mean, you're, you're right. There's, there's a lot of folks that just get indoctrinated with the Trinity idea, and then they never even question it. They're just like, that's where they're coming from. They don't know that it's controversial or that it's a, a, an idea that developed later. But there's also all mm-hmm. these other people that 
are being taught the Trinity, but for whatever reason, they're just not getting it. <laughs> and and so they're they're closet Unitarians, but they they would never use the U word. You know, they don't know that they're any different than anyone else. Uh, so it's really a <laughs> a mix. That is so true. I mean, I've been amazed now that I've come out of the closet, so to speak, now that I've come out and said, look, I don't believe, you know, I'm amazed how many people I assumed were Trinitarians say yeah. to me, you know what? It's never made any sense to me either. Or, look, I've got real problems with it. I'm amazed at how many people I assumed were Trinitarians because they're just attending Trinitarian churches who've got who really struggled with it. Yeah, yeah. What are some other problems with bringing these presuppositions to Scripture? In terms of the assumptions or presuppositions people have, I think a lot of, as I said, some people have never heard anything different. Other people accept it simply because of their credibility structure. There are people that they trust. Now, it might be their pastor in their local church. It might be theologians. It might be their church heritage. It might be their family. But they just take the authority that and the trust they have in those people, and they believe it based on that. The Church of Christ movement and the Restorationist movements have done so well on this because that's really the pushback, isn't it? The pushback mm. is, don't believe it because I said it, believe it because the Bible teaches it. You know, let's get back to the Bible and see what it says. Sadly, most denominations, you know, maybe they would pay lip service to that, but it's just not done in any kind of practical way. People, at least I, I can't really comment on Australia or other countries, but like in New York and, and, the, and the people I know in this country, they're not reading their Bibles. Mm -hmm. If you're lucky, they're reading some devotional where there's little bite-sized chunks of scripture that are adorned with all this flowery language of somebody who is sort of like interpreting it for you. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, people are not unleashing scripture on their beliefs and letting it have its way with them. <laughs> you know, they're hearing sermons that are very entertaining, very practical, very like self-helpy, but they're not ever getting exposed to say Deuteronomy 6.4 or John 17.3 or these big texts that will really challenge yes. us. The clarion call of back to the Bible is really what, what is needed here. Mm -hmm. When it comes down to the authority of your pastor or the authority of Scripture, who wins? That's really the question people have to ask. Yeah, no, that's true. And look, I, I think some people just put this doctrine in a bit of a basket that it's a bit like the cults, Jehovah Witnesses yeah. or other religions, yeah. Islam, whatever. So they've just kind of consigned it to heresy. They think that if you don't believe that Jesus is God, then therefore you can't be a legitimate Christian. You know, so they have that sort of assumption. And 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 maybe just some people think that if you don't think he's God, then somehow you're diminishing him and taking away from him in some way. Yeah. And there's a whole lot of anxiety and also cost personally and otherwise that's involved in actually, you know, taking on a position that's not mainstream. So look, for all of those and many other reasons, people assume things and have these presuppositions that back up their Trinitarian belief that, as you say, if it, if it was actually put to the test, uh, it would be found to be wanting. Yeah. One of the other ones that I've heard too, and you, you probably heard this, is a fear that 
if Jesus isn't God in a Trinitarian sense, then how how am I saved? How are my sins paid for? Uh, I'm sure yes. you've probably come across that one too. Yeah. And once again, this gets, okay, how do you change people's presuppositions or assumptions? How do you, how do you address that? My comment would be that to try to argue them out of it often is counterproductive. It just gets met with resistance, not necessarily depending on what's feeding those assumptions, but a far better way to go is to ask questions. You know, for example, that one, you know, someone might say, well, Jesus has to be God to die for my sins. And you say, well, that's interesting. You know, where do you actually read that in the Bible? Where does the Bible actually teach that? And then what about... Romans 5 or 1 Corinthians 15, you know, where it says that he had to be a man to die, you know. So you just ask those kind of questions that hopefully get them to think. If you come front on with that stupid, you know, blah, 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 and you're very combative, it just, because it's so anxiety producing, it just puts people, people the barriers up and, and, and you know. Um, so, yeah, it's just how you address those. Yeah, very good. Well, let's talk about sociology for a minute and the community aspect could you tell us a little bit about how you suffered? You know, some people, maybe this is their first time listening to an interview with you. Maybe they haven't listened to previous ones that I've done with you. Could you share a little bit about your own experience and what it cost you to, to question this? There certainly was a cost. I was pastor of a local church that was going very well. It was growing. It was one of the more successful in our network of, you know, or denomination of churches in our state. In Australia, churches don't tend to get it too big, but we were you know, around about 300. We had bought some property for several million with several million from the sale of our previous property that uh, we were going to just about build a whole new church in a, in a brilliant location. You know, it was all going really well. Then when it became conscious to a few that I had a different understanding and this sort of became public then as a result of that yeah I I did step down from my ministry for a number of reasons so I did lose my ministry I lost the vision I lost the community of people because I was told I wasn't allowed to come back Mm. I was heading up the ministers fraternal the local ministers they kicked me out yeah and and lost some some good close friends you know so there was there was all of that I always held my ministry lightly and I remember waking up after, the, you know, the day I resigned, the next day, and I just thought, you know what, my circumstances have changed, but the fundamentals are the same. You know, I'm still a child of God. I'm still, you know, got a wonderful family. I've still, you know, so, and I, I remember telling that to a warrant officer in my regiment because he he was a bit aware of the journey. He, he was a, an atheist and unbeliever and a pretty crusty guy. But he would love to talk to me about what was happening. And when I said that to him, he said, you know what? I wish I had that. And to cut a long story short, he's now attending a church and become a believer. So is his family. So I don't really see it as a big, big loss. I, I think, yeah. yeah, circumstances have changed. And, yeah. and I did lose things short term, but many other things have, you know, happened, the book and other things since. And yeah, God's good. He's no man's debtor. Yeah. So in light of all the connections and sociological issues that you've suffered, would you say it's been worth it to you 
to suffer so much socially for your beliefs? Yeah, I even would hesitate to use the word suffer. Um, yeah, there's been a cost. But look, there's been incredible benefits too. I think there's been just a benefit for me spiritually, you know, just to have a, a clearer understanding and a clearer conscience. And a, as I read the scriptures, there's that sense. There's also a sense of God opening up new doors. So yeah, look, it's not been. Do you feel like you can relate to Jesus more now? I can, yes, for a number of reasons. And, and, and certainly I see him more as a man who, who was experiencing temptations and the struggles and the challenges of his life as a man. You know, I, ne I never really fully appreciated that as a Trinitarian. It was always, oh, yeah, okay, but he was God, you know, so he's sort of at a different plane than we are. But even for him to have faith, you know, if, yes. if faith is, is the evidence of things not seen, mm -hmm. how could Jesus really have genuine faith? Because he, if he had pre-existed, he'd already seen. So he couldn't have faith as we're called to have faith. I mean, just in so many ways, I can relate to Jesus, yeah, and, and, and appreciate his humanity and how that impacts my Christian walk wonderfully. All right. So it's worth it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I didn't mention, which I probably should have, is that because of what happened at my church, it sent some eruptions through the other churches of Christ in, in my state to the point where they sought to bring in a creed or a statement of faith, they called it, that churches had to sign off on in order to be acceptable. And part it was a very Trinitarian creed. And I think really, and many people saw it this way, it was a reaction against what happened to me. Yeah. Luckily, that got defeated because that was so against churches of Christ and our whole ethos and history. Now, the guy that sought to bring that in, who was heading up churches of Christ in New South Wales, is no longer there. And someone else has come in to take his role. And he has focused very much on getting back to who churches of Christ were originally. Yeah. So what are some tips you would give to help people convince those in their in their lives uh, about this? Yeah. Well, I guess the first thing is basically to state the obvious, just be aware of assumptions. For example, the local Roman Catholic priest at the time, we were having discussions around it. And after a while, I realized, you know what? He actually believes that the church brought into existence the Bible, the canon, and that truth and doctrine is understood collectively, not individually. And so I had no right to question what the Roman Catholic Church believed. And I just realized, you know, our assumptions and presuppositions in terms of what, what has authority, they're so far apart that this discussion is not, not going to go anywhere. So, yeah, you just have to be aware of people's assumptions. And then I think the point I've already made, don't argue or try to argue people. I don't know that I've ever won an argument in the sense that, I don't know if you have either, Sean, but because often when you have an argument, even if you convince people against their will, What's that saying? Um, if They're you of the same opinion people, still. Yes, that's it. Yes, yes. <laughs> or you win the argument, but you lose the relationship or whatever. There's often this win-lose thing. So 
I think we overrate argument as a way to convince or influence people. Be kind. Actually, our English word kind has the root in the word kin or family. So it's treating people as though they are family. And in my, the seventh chapter of my book, I'm trying to argue rather than this us versus them mentality to see that, hey, look, we actually belong together in Christ, that we believe the essentials that he is, you know, the Messiah, the Son of God, and through him we have access to the Father and, and salvation through faith. And to, to just realise that, okay, we may differ on some of these other theologies, but just to try to come from a a, not, a non-combative, non-defensive sort of situation to entreat, uh, be kind, I guess. And then the last point I guess I'd make is just that thing of ask questions. And I think a couple of questions that would be good to ask someone is, share with me your journey. What was it in your spiritual journey or your Christian walk you know, how did you get to this place of believing that Jesus was fully God? What was it that influenced you? And a lot of people will say, oh, well, you know, it's just what I've always been told, you know. So understand what what were the influences and what brought them to that place because you can then talk into that and start to question that. But then you also you know, have this second question, well, why is it so important that Jesus has to be fully God? Why is that so important to you? And that's where they might come up with, well, you know, he had to be God to die for my sins or whatever. So I'd be asking questions, finding out what's behind their assumptions and then talking that through, hopefully in a in a fairly um, amiable way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A good question is better than a good answer when it comes to trying to convince somebody for sure. Uh, something yeah. I've seen too is, and this more pertains to preaching, we like to preach our core beliefs every year in our church, you know, because we always have new people coming and just because you preach it once doesn't mean that somebody remembers it or agreed with it last year, right? So we always make an effort to preach on several of our core beliefs, uh, not, not everything, but like m- most of them every year. And um, so we're, we're kind of in the midst of that right now at my church and we're in a series called We Believe and we're just going through our statement of faith and uh, just explaining it. And, uh, you know, I know that that there are people in the audience when I go to preach that are, are going to find this maybe not offensive, but uncomfortable. So what I what I do is I preface it and I'll say something like, look, I recognize that some of you might not believe the way that I'm about to explain this. Mm-hmm. Take some time think it through. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's important, so that's why I'm teaching it, but I'm not asking mm. you to agree with me now. I'm just asking you to consider this. And it just yes. kind of releases the pressure <laughs> so that people have a way out in the moment, mm. you know, and, and I think you could do that in a conversation too. You could say, look, you know, if you could just relieve the pressure to not win in this conversation, nobody needs to win. Let's just exchange some thoughts mm. on this topic and, you know, if you're interested, we could talk again later. So yep. the context of our discussion has been around theological debates. What are what are some other areas where this same wisdom applies about assumptions and presuppositions? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's just generally applicable 
to conversations of all kinds. One area that comes to mind is is evangelism. And, and I think what you've just said applies very much there as well, that when you're seeking to bring someone a different understanding uh, to where they are, you know, it, it it's good to relieve the anxiety. To come on strongly only tends to put them in a defensive mode. Uh, I just see it more like planting seeds and not trying to be the Holy Spirit that has to bring them over the line, but just you know, allow the Holy Spirit to to work in them and to be emotionally intelligent, to read from their responses, their body language, whether they're open to hear more or whether they are not ready to receive. That's really important. We don't want to, in a sense, cast our pearls before swine. We want to be, you know, talking with people who are receptive to hear. So understanding all of that, understanding what might be feeding their position. And, and one of those things is, you know, is change. Um, if we're asking people to, to consider making a significant change. So that's not going to necessarily happen in one conversation, in one event. It's often a part of a process and to realise that, you know, it, it's part of that. So, yeah, I think evangelism is is one area. Yeah. Sometimes we happen to be the person who... It's in the right spot at the right time and gets to share the gospel. But that is usually, almost always, I think, because there have been a series of events prior that God mm. has used to get this person to be receptive when you talk to them. And uh, you just don't really know where you're at with somebody, what their willingness is until you ask them about it. So, mm. yeah, presuppositions, man, this is such an important topic We'd have to be crazy to think that you and I don't also have our presuppositions that we need to evaluate. And, you know, that's something that I I do regularly. You know, I like to expose myself to people that think differently, to other preachers from other groups and theological books from different perspectives. And it's easy to just silo myself in an echo chamber of people who already agree with me. And it's very comfortable and cozy and warm there. Lots of high-fiving, you know. But, like, I I don't think we can really allow ourselves to do that long-term. At least not those of us who are in leadership. You know, we we really do have to continually be Bereans, Acts 17.11, and testing what we hear against Scripture to see if it's true. I I expect to continue to grow. You know, I don't know if you think you're done, but, you know, I I, I want to continue to grow. Uh, Absolutely. And, yeah. and learn whatever else I might be wrong about. Thanks uh, so much for talking with me today, Jeff. This has been great. What's what's next for you? Do you have any projects outlined? Look, I as I said, in this season, it's been interesting. It's been a different season for me, and I've had to adjust a little bit, but I am constantly surprised. I just kind of give myself and each day to God, and it's amazing, you know, what he's bringing across my path. And even like this podcast, I would have not uh, expected it a little while ago. And here we are. And that kind of keeps happening. So, yeah. 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 Just uh, walking by the Spirit. I love it. Well, thanks uh, so much for talking with me today. Always a pleasure, Sean. Well, that brings this interview to an end. What did you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 526, The Role of Assumptions in Bible Conversations, and leave your feedback there. Once again, you can get Jeff Dibel's Christ Before Creeds book on Amazon, 
It's on sale right now and makes a perfect gift for family and friends. Additionally, the Spanish version, Cristos Ante los Credos, is available now. I don't know how my Spanish accent was there. Don't really speak Spanish. But uh, for the Spanish brothers and sisters all around the world, I certainly recommend this book and hope that it can make an impact for you as well. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support us, you can contribute at restitudio.org. I'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.